Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks for giving the show a download this week, a listen, maybe you're watching on YouTube. Wherever it is that you are, we are so grateful that you are here. We have a huge name on the show this week. The man is a titan in the plant-based community and a renaissance man in the medical world. He is turning cardiac medicine as we know it upside down thanks to his innovative yet science-driven approach to treating, preventing, and even reversing heart disease. I'm talking about Dr. Robert Osfeld. I want to share with you an actual headline from a story in USA Today that was published earlier this year. The headline reads, Nearly half of Americans have heart disease, study says. Half. Half. That's roughly 122 million of us in the United States alone. Now, researchers believe that that jump was driven by the shift in hypertension guidelines. The definition, the clinical definition of high blood pressure was lowered from 140 over 90 down to 130 over 80. But even if you take the hypertension out of the equation, you take that shift out of the picture altogether, the rate of heart disease is still about 9%, and that makes it the leading cause of death in the U.S. According to the CDC, one in four deaths can actually be chalked up to heart disease. But here's the thing, right? Here's the good news. Groundbreaking research has shown that switching to a plant-based diet can prevent and in a lot of cases reverse heart disease. So making the change can lower your risk of developing it by 40%. And that that is why I hopped on a train and traveled up to New York City to sit down with Dr. Osfeld at the Montefiore Medical Center, where he is the founder and director of the hospital's cardiac wellness program. And the one prescription that all of his patients receive is a whole food plant-based diet. The program that he's put together is really something to behold. So think about this. Think about this, right? The idea of going vegan isn't something that's broached by the majority of doctors in this country. So when he first introduces that concept to those in his care, a lot of the patients just scratch their head and they kind of look at him like, Doc, what are you talking about? They look at him like he has two heads. It is a foreign concept to them that leaves them understandably puzzled. So what does Dr. Osfeld do then? Well, he then gives them the opportunity to watch the documentary Forks Over Knives. And that is when a lot of light bulbs finally start to go off in their heads. But of course, it doesn't stop there. And he and I are going to be getting into all of that during our conversation. And you'll also hear some incredible success stories from his patients. I'm telling you, you could fill a whole volume of books with these tales. Truly, truly amazing. And I'm really looking forward to following up with him next month when he comes down to Washington for the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. In sports parlance, this would be like a home and home series. We already played one on his turf, and now we're going again in my hometown. And what that means for you is that you will get the opportunity to ask follow-up questions. And I'll tell you how to do that before the end of the show. 
Now, speaking of the conference, speaking of ICNM, Dr. Neil Barnard's assistant extraordinaire, Natalie Hardcastle, she's going to be here to discuss everything that's going to be going on at that conference over those three days. She's putting the whole thing together. It's going to be a jam-packed 72 hours of hope, of inspiration, and the latest findings on the link between diet and disease. So Natalie, she's going to be here. She's going to be sharing some of the most anticipated presentations with us. And the names on that list are equally huge. We're talking about everyone from Dr. Barnard to Dr. Osfeld to the great Dr. Dean Ornish and Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. It is a virtual who's who of nutrition rock stars. And we are so excited that they are coming to the conference this year. And you can be there, too. As a matter of fact, I want you to be there. So stick around for that and then come join us in July. Before we bring on Dr. Robert Osfeld, I want to let you know that our conversation on the exam room is brought to you by the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. The fund supports organizations that carry on Greg's passion and love for animals through rescue efforts, veganism, and wildlife conservation. Visit GregoryRyderFund.org. That's Gregory, R-E-I-T-E-R, fund.org to learn about Greg's story. You can also learn about animal issues and subscribe to the fund's newsletter. The link can also be found on our podcast site for this episode. The Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion Chuck Carroll here on location at Montefiore Hospital in the Bronx, New York. Very excited about this. This is a gentleman who I've wanted to have on the show for some time. He is among the top sought-after guests that I've ever wanted on this program. And with that, we welcome Dr. Robert Osfeld to the program. Thank you for being here. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here with you today. There were a number of names given to me when I first started doing this show, and they said, Chuck, you have to have these guys on. Dr. Neil Barnard, no problem. Had him on the first show. Kind of easy. He's right upstairs. Uh, Dr. T. Colin Campbell, we're going to have him uh, very shortly. And then Dr. Robert Osfeld. And here you are. And so this is a true bucket list moment. Well, you're very generous. That's an incredible heady group to be associated with. So I'll take it. Thank you. Well, thank you for what it is that you do. You are a plant-based cardiologist. And there are are maybe a growing number of plant-based cardiologists out there, but certainly not an inordinate amount. So, I mean, what is it like working in this field and and studying plant-based nutrition and and seeing the effects that it can have on heart health when so many of your colleagues not necessarily looking yet into the plant-based diet? Well, it's been incredible to see the impact of plant-based nutrition on our patients' health. They get so much better. I mean, it's really, why do we go into medicine? We want to help people. It really helps us make that happen. And, you know, there was a really interesting questionnaire that asked about 900 cardiologists, how many of you think that nutrition is important? And about 90% or so said, yeah, we think it's important. And then they asked, what percent of you think that you had enough training during residency and fellowship to help patients achieve meaningful nutrition change, 1%. Uh 90% thought it was important, and 1% felt equipped 
to help people make that change. And that was my experience along the way with training. I had the opportunity to train with incredible people along the way. But if you told me about plant-based nutrition when I finished my cardiology fellowship, I frankly would have thought it was weird. We just aren't getting exposed to it. And the, the guest that you're going to have, Dr. T. Colin Campbell, an, an incredible man, and it's his book and his work that helped me come along this path. So it's been incredible to work with our patients to see the profound pr improvements uh, that they get. And it's been incredible to work with our colleagues because although they may not be, including me, equipped with the information about how to help people manifest this change, they know it's important. So the activation energy to help, you know, bring us all along the way, it's already there. So we're just, you know, greasing the wheels, if you will, a bit. As more and more research now is being done, showing the link between plant-based diets and cardiac health, are more of your colleagues then starting to open their eyes to it? And is there still a sect of cardiologists who kind of have that old school mentality about it where they're, they're not yet looking at that and they still view it maybe as you did when you finished your fellowship as, well, that's just weird. Yeah, I mean, it's all of the above. You're 100% correct. And we are benefiting also from societal trends. I mean, there are articles all the time about plant-based this, plant-based that, this person doing great, that person doing great. And we are benefiting from that societal wave because, you know, that's on the, the big TV news channels or the newspapers. So we're all seeing it. Uh, all kinds of doctors and medical students alike. And so the biggest shift that I've seen is actually in the medical students because they're probably the most social media, well, I can, at least among my colleagues, I can assure you that medical students are by far much more social media savvy and they're getting a lot of this information. And I have the, the opportunity to teach a class as part of their core curriculum where I take a deep dive into plant-based nutrition, 175 medical students a year at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. It's pretty cool. And many of them are already pretty well abreast of this information. So it's great. So, so things are shifting. And it may be a true grassroots movement because it is the, the younger people who are helping to shift the curve. Now, in terms of our older colleagues, um, many of them are open to having people eat more plants, um, they definitely support it. Now, some rate-limiting steps are maybe they're not sure how to talk to people about it. Maybe they don't think that the patient can do it. Um, maybe they think, well, I can't do it, so how could I have my patient do it? You know, and society does not make the healthy choice the easy choice. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of hurdles that we have to overcome. But many of my colleagues are receptive to the message having that manifest into overt change is another story. But there definitely is, I mean, just like there are different camps and politics and this and that, unfortunately, with diet, it seems to be the same as well. There are a handful of people that fall into the keto arm. Um, and uh, there are you know, a handful of people that fall in the paleo arm and some that fall in the Mediterranean arm. And the Mediterranean-style diet is, is quite a good diet. Um, and, uh, but many of these dietary patterns have a lot of, Venn, the Venn diagrams overlap a lot. Right. Many of them focus on vegetables, fruits, whole grains, things like that. So there's a lot of common ground that we can build from. You mentioned keto. That's a buzzword. That's a big one right now. Uh, and whenever we do a keto podcast, I mean, just the downloads, they shoot through the roof. People are so into keto for whatever reason. As a cardiologist, I'm always curious to ask this. What is your opinion of the keto diet? 
As a cardiologist, I believe the keto diet is a mistake. The keto diet, I believe, is based on misinformation. And the general theme is that in the 1980s, the government told us to eat low fat. Then we ate low fat, and look at us now. We're fat and sick. It's a really nice narrative, but it's not true. We ate more of everything, including fat. So it's based, I think, on fake news. There is no long-living population that, con that is consistently in a state of ketosis. And the one population that often comes up is the Inuit population. <clears throat> they live very far north near the pole and they eat a lot of fish. Well, they have similar heart disease rates as people in Canada. And actually, the Inuit population, they've selected for a mutation that makes it harder for them to go into ketosis, hmm. suggesting that it is not evolutionarily benef beneficial to be in a chronic state of ketosis. And if you look at the longest living populations in the world, the blue zones with the most centenarians, their diet is more than 50% carbs and primarily plant-based. There's, th there's no low-carb population in the blue zones. And there's a really, really interesting population called the Simon people. They live in Bolivia, and there was an article about them in 2017 in Lancet. They're an indigenous population, and they have the lowest rates of heart disease ever recorded in the medical literature. And how do they know that? They did CAT scans of their hearts. Like, they literally flew down CAT scan wow. machines, like, into the jungles of Bolivia. It's amazing. Their heart disease rate, if you look at them compared to a typical Westerner, their artery age, pound for pound, is 25 years younger than ours. What's their diet? 72% carbs. Okay, so the longest living populations are eating uh, more carbs. The Simon people, lowest rate of heart disease in the world, have 72% carbs. And if you look at what are some of the things you are leaving out in the ketogenic diet. You're leaving out whole grains. Among the, you're leaving out fruit, um, you are, or almost all fruit, and you're leaving out uh, pulses like beans and lentils. Mm -hmm. All of those things are among the healthiest foods in the world. If you eat, there was a wonderful study out of Lancet where they looked at uh, 135 million person years of follow-up. That's a huge study. You follow me for one year in a study, that's one person year of follow-up. And they found the more whole grains you ate, the better you did. You live longer, less heart disease, less cancer, less diabetes. Yeah, you ate more whole grains and you had less diabetes. You're leaving that out. How about the fruit? Similar kind of data. Dr. Du found in a, in a huge population out of China, like 500,000 people worth, published in the New England Journal of Medicine and PLOS Online, the more fresh fruit you ate, the better you did. The less heart disease, the less high blood pressure, the less diabetes. Yes, you ate more fresh fruit and you had less diabetes. I'm kind of getting sick of hearing about how fruit causes diabetes. Beans and lentils, the pulses, also are associated with living longer. You leave all those things out and then the ketogenic diet is helpful for people with refractory epilepsy in the pediatric population. Right. And, and it started in this, this group in the hospital because there's so many side effects. There's pages and pages of side effects. Um, 
heart arrhythmias, mineral deficiencies, cardiomyopathy, fractures, kidney stones. They, they take it, they're very careful with it. Um, so um, I don't think a ketogenic diet uh, is your friend. And as a cardiologist, I recommend my patients absolutely do not do it. Now, why do people consider a ketogenic diet helpful? There are two general categories. One category is weight loss. The other category is diabetes. Now, in regard to weight loss, a ketogenic diet is helpful for short-term weight loss, but so is cocaine. <laughs> and the, what happens is if you don't eat any carbs, you use up your glycogen stores in your body. That's what glucose is stored as, and that holds water. So use them up. You pee out the water, lose a little weight. When you initially start a ketogenic diet, you get something called the keto flu, and you feel a little crummy, so you eat a little less. And then the ketones themselves are water avid, so they help you pee out fluids. So in the short term, you lose weight. But in meta-analyses of, of multiple randomized trials of weight loss with a keto diet versus a higher carb diet, there's really only about a kilo, less than a kilogram of difference in weight loss. Mm. And then of course, you're leaving out all those healthy foods and there's multiple mechanisms of potential harm when you're eating more of an, you know, an animal-based ketogenic diet from heme iron to, to impacting the microbiome, to sialic acid, to LDL cholesterol, to inflammation, to oxidative stress, to antioxidants. The list goes on. I'd be happy to take a deep dive into those. That's weight loss. So I look at the weight loss thing, to be honest, as fool's gold. Uh, diabetes, when you, a meta-analysis of large randomized trials longer term showed that there's uh, no significant difference between a higher carb, low fat, and a ketogenic diet in terms of sugar control. Now, if you eat no sugar, your blood sugar levels will go down. Um, but the issue is you're not necessarily reversing the underlying reason why you have the diabetes, we're talking about adult onset type 2 sure. diabetes, you have diabetes in the first place. That's the insulin resistance. And you're just masking it by making it seem like your blood sugar is low. And what happens is when you're eating more animal products, you get fat deposits in your muscle and your liver, causing insulin resistance, making it harder for the glucose to go from your blood into those places where it can be stored. Now, when you don't eat sugar, it looks your blood sugar goes down, so it looks like you fixed the problem. But then when you sit within six feet of a donut, your blood sugar shoots up. Um, so to me, reversing diabetes is not um, masking it, but actually being able to eat fruit and whole grains and not having your blood sugar go up. And we do have data from the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine where eating a plant-based diet can improve insulin resistance and improve beta cell or the pancreas's ability to make insulin. I'm not aware of any data to that effect with a, a ketogenic diet. I, I want to go back to the carb thing that you were talking about. I think that we're such a carb phobic society by and large and carbs get such such a bad rap but there's a distinction between you know good carbs and bad carbs you know and but everything kind of gets lumped together and you you, you were just rattling off fruit and whole grains and uh, potatoes and pulses and things of that nature okay those i would put in the healthy carb category but they all get lumped together with 
the donut that you were just talking about or the potato chip or something like that. That has to be frustrating as a cardiologist. Like, why is all of that stuff getting lumped together? So you have patients coming in. They must be pretty confused. You're 100% right. That's a really great point. Um, and broccoli is a carb, but so is a sugar cookie. And of course, no one's going to argue that they're the same. You're 100% right. And Satija did a great article looking at the health impact of a healthy plant-based diet, whole grains, vegetables, fruits, versus an unhealthy plant-based diet like white bread, sugar cookies, that kind of thing. The more of a healthy plant-based diet you ate, the better you did. Mm -hmm. But if you ate an unhealthy plant-based diet, you actually did, numerically, a teeny bit worse than an animal-based diet. So the devil's in the details, and you're absolutely right. Carbs, are, it's just a huge, overly broad term. Uh, so. You know, and that's why, as you know, we'll, we'll often use the term whole food, plant-based. So whole food means minimally processed. Right. So you're right. It's like a very important distinction. I want to switch gears a little bit, and uh, I want to tap into your 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 time in the uh, operating room. And I want to go inside an artery, if you will. And we hear a lot about plaque buildup. And I'm curious, you know, we, we hear about plaque on our teeth. Obviously, you got to brush it off every morning and at night before you go to bed. Is that similar to what you find in an artery when it's clogged up? What does that look like? I've always been curious about that. Well, the plaque in the teeth are it's a little bit different than the plaque in the arteries, but you bring up an important point because there is a link. And when you have gum disease, that creates inflammation in your mouth, and that seeps into your blood vessels and can promote uh, disease in blood vessels, make the blood vessels function less well. And we know if you treat gum disease, you can reduce inflammation in your mouth, in your blood vessels, and improve blood vessel function over time. So although they look different, there's a link through inflammation. So actually, sometimes I kind of feel like a renaissance cardiologist because <laughs> I literally ask my patients to floss, every one of them. And I'll just say, I'll say, uh, you know, we'll go through stuff and I'll say, so will you floss? And then I just look at them. I would so love, yeah, what, what kind of response do you get? Is a huh? I give them a little context. Yeah, so I okay. just, just jump it ahead, but we'll, we'll, but, and then sometimes we'll ask and I'll explain the rationale behind it like we went through. And then I'll just say, will you floss? And I'll just look at them and wait for them to answer because I think uh, if they say yes, they'll be m more likely to do it than if I just say, please floss. Um, that's my hypothesis. But at any rate, the looking into an artery, um, it's really fascinating. So there's the artery and there's the inner wall with those endothelial cells um, that are one cell layer thick. It's like the wallpaper inside the wall. And then right outside of it is a muscle layer and then there's an, another layer around that as well. So that's the artery. Normally it's wide open and if you're going for a jog and your leg needs more blood, the endothelial cells secrete more nitric oxide, which helps the arteries to the leg dilate, so your leg gets more blood, and they're really healthy and flexible. But you know what? In the US, in the Western world, by the time we're 12 to 14, about two thirds of us have early signs of cholesterol disease in the blood vessels mm. that feed our hearts with blood. Two thirds of 12 to 14 year olds, and I'm pretty sure that most of the people listening to this podcast are older than 12. Yeah. So um, the, uh, what happens is those healthy, the healthy wallpaper, the endothelial cell can get injured. And whether that's from pollution or inflammation or a toxic Western diet or smoking, it gets injured. 
And when that happens, the, we will have, the, the blood runs in the middle of the artery, and it has little cholesterol particles in there too. And if we eat fewer animal products, we will have less cholesterol. But our body makes some when you have cholesterol flowing through. And that can burrow across the endothelial cell and land in the wall of the artery exactly where you don't want it. Mm -hmm. And when it's there, it can become oxidized like a splinter. You know, if you get a splinter in your finger, it's all red and irritating and painful. Well, it's the same kind of thing except in the wall of your artery where you don't want it. That makes the artery sicker, less healthy over time. And it creates local inflammation, kind of like you had in your gums with dental disease, but local inflammation in your artery, making it function less well. And that local inflammation damages the endothelial cells even more, letting more cholesterol particles in, more cells going across to try to fight that inflammation. And then the plaque grows and grows. Um, And then an artery that may have been wide open becomes blocked. Maybe 50% of it, 60% of it can get blocked with all of that cholesterol plaque that's growing in the artery. But perhaps even more important than that, after a while, with all of that cholesterol plaque, there's a fibrous cap that forms over the cholesterol plaque that separates it from where the blood flows in the artery. And you don't ever want that cholesterol plaque to touch the blood. Why not? Because if it touches the blood, it can make the blood clot and block the whole artery. That's an emergency. That's a heart attack. You want a stent right away. Don't pass go. Straight to the cath lab. Get a stent. But what happens is with all that inflammation, local, more cholesterol particles burning across, that fibrous cap gets thinner and thinner and weaker and weaker. To one random Tuesday afternoon, it cracks, Mm. exposing the plaque that was living under the cap in the wall of the artery to the blood and it can block it all off, causing a heart attack. So that's the general evolution, but it's a process that begins when we're so, so young. So from my standpoint, it's never too early to start to be plant-based and it's never too late. That's, that's good to know. Um, yeah, my background, and today is the first day that we met, um, my background is at my heaviest, I weighed 420 pounds. I was put on high blood pressure medication in high school, you know, beta blockers. I think I was a junior, I was 15 or 16 years old. Um, and, you know, I, I lost all of the weight. I, I had gastric bypass surgery because I literally did not know what else to do. Um, but for whatever reason, it took, you know, and, and I attribute more to just studying up on nutrition and changing my entire lifestyle than, you know, anything else for maintaining the weight loss. But, I'm still terrified to this day that I may have done 27 years of damage that I can't completely reverse. But I think that, you know, in the years now that I have been 100% plant-based, that uh, I've certainly been able to hopefully knock on, I assume that's what, reverse a lot of that damage. You know, it's, it's a scary thing to think about. Well, I totally agree. And at least from my clinical experience, I couldn't think of a better way to protect you than, than you embracing a plant-based diet. So I think what you've done is wonderful. And had you not, the disease processes would have very likely progressed even more. And, and accordingly, you know, I'll have a patient in clinic. Now, this is a different kind of disease process than, than, than you had, but the general themes overlap. For example, I had one patient come to see me maybe a little under a year ago, and he was on the doorstep of bypass surgery multiple mm-hmm doctors had very appropriately 
recommended bypass surgery, and it would have been medically inappropriate for me to not recommend that he have bypass surgery, would go against all medical guidelines, which are very thoughtfully laid out. Um, and so I told him, you know, this would indeed be the, the recommendation that you have plant-based, that you have bypass surgery, but he didn't want that. And that's cool. Patient's the boss. So we worked really hard on having him adopt a plant-based diet. And he did. And he was literally on the doorstep of bypass surgery, could barely walk a few blocks. Mm-hmm. He's about to run. He just ran a half marathon a few weeks ago. Nice. This is about 10 months later. Love it. Um, and... You know, that's a pretty impressive turnaround, mm-hmm. but I have multiple patients have these kinds of things happen, come off five, 10 medications, lose 15, 20 pounds and reverse their diabetes, they come off their high blood pressure medications, skin complexion get better, erectile function improve. Multiple patients, I mean, it's not something that people necessarily like to talk about a lot, but multiple patients will tell me that their erectile dysfunction have improved and there's pathophysiologic rationale to, to to think that that would be the case. The same, the same kind of disease process that affects the arteries to the heart affects the arteries to the penis. So um, we see these incredible kinds of, of uh, turnarounds, and I think it's amazing, um, you know, all the, the changes we've all made. I'd love to hear that. I love a good story. And so you have here just this incredible program, and I, I can't wrap this up without asking you a little bit. Uh, you have both an inpatient and an outpatient program where you introduce people to the plant-based diet, like you were just mentioning. So walk, walk me through this. Like, this, this is really kind of a revolutionary concept. Oh, well, well, thank you. You're very generous. So we have, for our clinical uh, program, we have two arms, an outpatient arm and an inpatient arm. The outpatient arm started around seven or so years ago, and basically I weave plant-based nutrition into every patient visit that I have. Um, and we do the usual stuff, history, physical exam, medications, but then I talk about how plant-based nutrition is incredibly important for that specific person, that sp- their specific issues. And long story short, we give them handouts that go through exactly how I would like them to eat. And then we have these Saturday morning sessions that we do every other month or so, Uh, They're four hours long. I speak, a nutritionist, an RD, Lauren Graff speaks, and we take a deep dive into the how and why of plant-based nutrition. And we ask people to come with a friend or significant other to help them along the way. We serve lunch, and uh, and we don't don't charge patients for it either. Uh, I I fund it all through donations. There's a very large indigent patient population here, and I want to democratize this information as much as possible. And even if I charge seven bucks, it would not come anywhere near our cost, but even if I charge seven bucks, that would be too much of a rate limiting step mm-hmm. for, for quite a few of our patients. So I just have it all for free. Um, and, and so that's in a nutshell, our outpatient arm, and I'll follow up with people over time. And so we also have an inpatient arm of the program. And what would happen is I would round in the hospital a number of weeks each year. I'd talk about plants with the patients in the hospital. I'd leave. And then five minutes later, dinner served. And it's chicken. You know, like, I'm just totally undercut. It just wasn't working. So I had the opportunity to work with nutrition and with food services, and we developed plant-based meals for patients. So now you can go in the patient's room. You can order plant-based meals that go to them, but that wasn't enough. We now give, It comes with a handout in English and in Spanish, which can help explain why we want them to eat this way and what the food is. But that wasn't enough. We wanted more education. So the documentary film, Forks Over Knives, now plays on continuous loop on one of the channels on the inpatient TVs for free for patients with Spanish subtitles. So now I walk in a patient's room, 
I tell them, you know, rah-rah plants. I order the meals. It comes with a handout, and I can outsource a lot of the education to Forks Over Knives, which is helpful because I don't have 90 minutes to spend with each patient. I just wouldn't physically be able to do that. Um, so it's been a wonderful thing. And many and we were blessed to be able to have this program, and many other hospitals have started similar kinds of programs and are showing Forks Over Knives on, on their inpatient TVs as well. So that's our, in a nutshell, our inpatient program. It's been just... It's just been great. That's fantastic. When when you approach patients, I'm sure a good number of them have not even thought about a plant-based diet until you enter the room. What kind of reaction do you get? I'm sure that you get some pretty funny ones. Yeah, I mean, they look at me, well, some people are totally open to it, but some people look at me like I'm from Mars. Right. Like, I've <laughs> never, ever heard this before. And, you know, it just goes against the whole way they've been, been brought up and you know, uh, one thing I would recommend is right now, and when we order the meal, it's called Heart Healthy Vegan, mm-hmm. and we're working to get the name vegan out of it because some people are turned off by that term. Some people really like that term, but I just want it to be called something without vegan to, to cast, help us cast a wider net. And I've had some patients get really upset at the term vegan. Um, you know, you can just erase the term. It's the same diet. But that can turn some people off, so I recommend not weaving that into your dietary name if you can. Um, but what it really comes down to is, you know, a conversation. And you let people know that we think this is an incredibly important part of your care. If the doctor treats it as seriously as they do the medications and the procedures, then the patients often do as well. That's incredibly important for them to know you know, particularly either in the in or outpatient setting, for them to know that their doctor also thinks it's really important. And hopefully that helps with behavior change. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny that you say that because on my way over here, I'm, I'm talking with my Uber driver and we're having this long conversation and he was a, he's a chatty one. Stereotypical New York former cabbie, you know, um, says a lot of words that I would never utter on this podcast. You know, just a real, real full of life, this guy. But anyway, he tells me that he had once lost a lot of weight, but then put it all back on. And so, like, he's almost back up to 300 pounds. And I'm telling him about the plant-based diet. And he's telling me, it was like, ah, it's some hippie nonsense and this and that. I'm like, look, man. I was like, you can think that. But I don't go home at night and burn sage and smudge sticks and, you know, incense and things like that. What I'm going to talk to you about is based off of research, medical stuff, like the National Institutes of Health. I'm going to a hospital. These are not hippie parlors, right. you know, Mr. Rios. And, and by the time that we got from Astoria over here to where we are in the Bronx, like his eyes were opened. And so I think that it's important that you kind of meet the person where they are and you're kind of able to match the personality a little bit, you know, and just find that little bit of an in and let them know that it's okay to just kind of explore a little bit. Maybe, maybe just start by dipping a pinky in there just a little bit, see what, see what it's all about. And then they'll realize, you know, it's, it's, it's not a hippie thing, you know, it's a health thing. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And different people have different ways of giving you the Heisman about the diet and the hippie thing. I mean, (laughs) some of the toughest people, as you all well know, in the world are plant-based. Patrick Baboumian, the world's strongest man. And of course, we know that because he won the world's strongest man contest, is plant-based. He's vegan. I mean, you know, ultimate fighters, bodybuilders. Uh, So it's really... um, you know, it's just a misperception. It's a myth. And I hear you. Like, we try to find a hook 
with each patient? You know, do they want to walk their child down the aisle? Do they want to look good for an upcoming reunion? Do they want to get off med X, Y, or Z? Like, what is their particular thing? And then we try to, you know, link up how a plant-based diet will help with that to meet them where they are. Yeah, it's, it's um, well, I'll put it to you this way. I'm optimistic about the future, especially as, as we bring this to a close. You said that the med students are, are definitely very open to it. And I think that with more and more of them uh, wrapping up their residency and then going into practice, we'll, we'll continue to see the, uh, the effects of this improve. And, and hopefully that stigma uh, will then be erased. It'll just become a thing. Indeed. Completely agree. <laughs> Dr. Robert Osfeld, uh, I can't uh, tell you how much I appreciate your time, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you at the uh, ICNM International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine this July down in uh, Washington, D.C. Can't wait. Thank you. I'm really excited to be there, and I'm really excited about it. It's an incredible conference, and there's just so many wonderful wonderful things out and coming out. You know, uh, Dr. Stansix. Code Blue documentary all about medical education, which we're going to be having a showing of here at Einstein. Game Changers documentary all about plant-based nutrition, and, you know, being being strong and athletic and, and eating plant-based. Um, and we have our conference coming up too here at Montefiore on November 2nd, our preventive uh, cardiology conference as well. It's just an incredible time in this space. And I share your optimism. It's a, um, there are great changes coming. He is indeed a renaissance man of cardiovascular medicine. Truly an honor to have Dr. Osfeld on the show, and no doubt you have a couple of questions rattling around in your head. So my goal is to have him back on the show when he's in town for the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine next month. And if you would like to have your question answered on the show, we'll do our best to get to it. Please tweet your question to us at Chuck Carroll, WLC. That's Carroll with two R's and two L's and the WLC standing for Weight Loss Champion. So at Chuck Carroll, WLC on Twitter or at PCRM. Just use the hashtag exam room podcast. You know, at last year's ICNM, I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Kim Williams. Now, he is the former president of the American College of Cardiology. And he was introduced to the concept of a plant-based diet through the miraculous turnaround of a patient of his. And he never saw this one coming. It blindsided him. But boy, did he get inspired. So this patient followed the Dr. Dean Ornish diet and showed dramatic improvement in her cardiovascular health. And then there was Dr. Williams' epiphany. He was so impressed by this patient's results that he decided to begin working them into his own practice, and it didn't hurt that he was also able to lower his own cholesterol by switching to a plant-based diet. So Dr. Williams, he goes all in for himself and for his patients, and now we're going to revisit our conversation here on The Exam Room. This is the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee, the weight loss champion Chuck Carroll here with you. And I'm just thrilled to death to have Dr. Kim Williams with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, you have quite the resume, my friend. I need to put on my glasses here to go over everything that uh, you are. I have the chief of the Division of Cardiology and the James B. Herrick Endowed Professor of Medicine and Cardiology at Rush University Medical Center. True. That is true. You are also the former president of the American Society of Nuclear Cardiology. Very true. 
All right. The former chairman of the Association of Black Cardiologists. Uh, indeed. And the former president of the American College of Cardiology. It's truly an honor. What does your business card look like, Dr. Williams? <laughs> I mean, it's got to be ridiculously long. It's a, well, it's a tiny font. <laughs> <laughs> And we're going to have some fun. So you have a background in cardiology. And one of the things that I've learned doing this podcast over the last year is the link between diet and chronic heart disease is so much stronger than so many people know. What is your particular story as far as diet and the heart and learning about plant-based nutrition? Well, you're actually, if I can digress for just a moment. Back it up. I'm not sure that what you said was actually true. Uh, and I've actually been taking advantage of that in my, in my clinic and when I'm in the coronary care unit recently. So it's like this. A patient comes in, they've had a heart attack. Mm-hmm. They typically, we do a door-to-balloon time less than 90 minutes. They are having a good outcome. They've got a stent in their artery and they're staying overnight and you're talking with them the next, the next morning. What we do that many physicians do not do is just start with the patient and say, hey, what do you think happened to you? said, uh, I had a heart attack. Uh, and how did you have that heart attack? Mm, well, I think one of my arteries got blocked. Um, and so, yeah, that's true. What did it get blocked with? And they say, um, cholesterol and fat? Say, yeah, that's right. And how did that get there? And they scratch their head for a half a second, and then they say, I ate it. So I'm not sure that the American population does not know better. Ah. I think there is, like the people who smoke, which I don't, so I don't understand it, there's this feeling of immortality. Yes, my mother and my uncle got lung cancer as a smoker, but it's not going to happen to me. Right. I don't know what that is. I'm sure there are behavioralists who actually do understand it. It's hard for me to understand. And similarly, it's hard for me as a cardiologist, knowing that I've had friends in cardiology who have died of heart disease, who have had stents, uh, you know, and very famously, uh, uh, the president of the American Heart Association had a heart attack on the podium at the last American Heart Association meeting. Well, what is that? Uh, and I, I almost admittedly get a little jealous that people can just do whatever they want thinking that there's no consequences because I can't think that way. Right. I'm, putting the two, I'm putting this logical string together and realizing that my behavior is going to affect my outcome. Um, so anyway, I think most Americans who have a heart attack know exactly why they had it. And if you, if you get them to put the dots together, they can actually do something about it. I like the way that you just said that you help put the dots together for them. I would imagine that that's so much more effective in getting that message in there than saying, no, you were wrong to eat the hot dog. You were wrong to eat the pizza, the hamburger, blah, 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 blah. And they're right. like, whoa, time out there, That's doc. right. But if you baby step them through there, a lot more receptive. Oh, it's very true. So at, at Rush, I, I like to talk about our patient population, which is so diverse. We're taking care of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and you know multi-billionaires. And then we've got a bunch of people who are from the inner city. And if they're more from the west side, there are a lot of Hispanics. If they're more from the south side, they're more African-Americans. Uh, if they're more north, there might be the Greek population, um, the Serbian population, Polish population. And everyone has their own culture and their own uh, style. And when you ask people to change their diet, 
to give up the things they love, whether whether it's hero sandwiches or black eyed peas with cornbread with ham hocks in it. That is part of their culture. And so it may sound funny to us uh, who aren't part of that culture, but when you're attacking someone's food pattern, you're attacking their family, their community, a lot of times their church, Mm -hmm. and we have to be sensitive to that. We have to actually recognize that. And so that's why I think this sort of string of events where people put it together themselves, it uh, puts their own mind as sort of an investment into that process, and then they can make an intelligent decision on whether or not they're going to continue to do that uh, and end up on our table again or someone else's table, uh, or if they're going to try to do better for themselves. You said black eyed peas and ham hock. I got to ask, where are you from originally? Oh, I, south side of Chicago. Yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, w- when did you first, like, what was your inspiration then to get into cardiology? Was there something in your family, or was it just something that you were always interested in? So, it's interesting that I was stimulated to go into medicine because of my experience in the inner city, uh, growing up poor. I probably don't want to say this in front of everybody. I'll go ahead and say it. So, but I came from a, a home that was had limited resources, let's sure. say, and someone I won't say who was had promised to give me a coat for winter. Birthday is in November. It's getting a little cold. I'm walking to school without a coat. I end up with pneumonia in December. And during that hospitalization, and I won't say on the air which hospital it was because it's still there, um, the, notice how difficult the care was for inner-city kids. And uh, when I realized that my pneumonia penicillin wasn't coming on time, I would go to the nursing station. Then I started getting the meds for my roommate, whose meds weren't coming on time. And I just got involved and tried to fix it. And I, I decided right then, as a 12-year-old, that I was going to become a physician and work in pediatrics on the south side of Chicago. And so that became my focus. I went to college. I went to University of Chicago Medical School on the south side of Chicago. And I was going to fix this. And I'm so happy that my first um, uh, clinical rotation as a third year student was pediatrics. And then I found out one thing. I don't like sick children. <laughs> sick, <laughs> sick children are dep- it's depressing. I have so much respect for the pediatricians who can actually do that day in and day out and not have it take a piece of them. Yeah. Uh, but it did take a piece of me. So anyway, the other, as I was making that realization, I also realized that throughout my medical school, there was cardiac physiology, there was physical diagnosis, I could hear the murmurs that other students couldn't hear, I could read an EKG as if I had done it before. It was something very natural about cardiology. And so, you know, one principle that everyone in leadership always tries to get to the younger people is do something that you love because that way you can actually work without working. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, I went into cardiology because that's where just all my proclivities were. Um, so that's a very strange way that I ended up uh, as a cardiovascular specialist. Since we mentioned, uh, the link between heart disease and, and nutrition is super, super powerful. I want to go back to those conversations that you have with patients. You, mm-hmm. you make a very good point that people know more than, than we realize. So, you know, right. guilty as charged for even saying that. Um, but... I don't think that a lot of people realize then what a plant-based diet can do for their health. I don't think that a lot of people realize that if they have heart disease, that they can dramatically improve their health, or in some cases, even fully reverse heart disease by changing up their diet. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about when you learned about that. Was there like 
an epiphany or angels singing on high or like how, how did that work out for you? Well, it's actually a relatively famous story now. I, I, uh, my, I talked about how I went into cardiology, but I didn't mention how I went to nuclear cardiology. And um, but the fact of the matter is, I always liked physics, and the best amount of physics that you can get in cardiology is ionizing radiation. So mm-hmm. of course I do cardiac CT and and nuclear cardiology. And as I was running my nuclear lab, uh, you know, putting out high quality images, there was a patient when I was reading one day who had had horrific um, blood flow abnormalities on a nuclear scan about 18 months earlier. And she's back in the lab today and I'm looking at the scan and it's a whole lot better. And so I'm used to seeing that. It's typically after bypass surgery or after stenting. And my worksheet didn't give me the date that I could put in my report of when the revascularization had taken place. So I asked the staff. They said, no, she said she didn't have anything done. So I called her on the phone. I said, I'm sorry, my lab has missed something. I'd just like to get when was your revascularization date. She said, what revascularization? I said, you, your scan, uh, you know, your doctor will tell you the details, but it's a whole lot better. And so I assume that you had something done. He says, no, I, they told me I needed an angiogram, and I refused. Because I looked up online, and I saw Dean Ornish's program, and I started doing it. And between the meditation and the exercise and the diet with no more animal products, uh, my chest pain went away in about six weeks. And I was, I'd lost a lot of weight. And I was dropping all my medications. And I was exercising. And I was training for a marathon. But I stepped off the curb and I broke my ankle. And that's why I'm back in the nuclear lab. Because they said that I couldn't go to the operating room because my scan was so bad. And I knew it wouldn't be so bad. Uh-huh. And she was right. Uh-huh. And so that made me pull out all the literature on the Dean Ornish diet. Mm-hmm. And he had 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 several publications, a lot of them in nuclear cardiology, showing dramatic improvements in blood flow uh, when you just change your diet. It's two things at once. It improves the function of the blood vessels, so there's more blood flow delivery even before there's any change in the amount of plaque, but it also does plaque regression. Wow. And so you put those two together, and people are immediately at a lower risk than they were before they started. So you, you see this one patient, and then at what point then do you start kind of prescribing this or at least introducing it to your own? It's so funny that uh, what basically happened is uh, sort of on the personal side, I had a kid who was nationally ranked tennis player. I was the teaching pro. I was his coach. And um, he aged out of playing junior national tournaments, and I was no longer playing tennis twice a day, every day. Mm-hmm. We would take off Monday if he won the tournament the previous weekend. Okay. okay? And all of a sudden, my own LDL cholesterol was with a, just a bit less exercise with, and a little bit more aging, had actually, was actually taking off on my chicken and fish American Heart Association heart-healthy diet. And so that recognition clicked in with the Ornish diet, with what I had seen, and I immediately adopted it. And within six weeks, my LDL cholesterol was under control. Uh, just about a 50% reduction, which is what, you, what happens when you go from a high-cholesterol diet to a no-cholesterol diet, typically 40 50 60% reduction. And so that really uh, helped me. And then I started, I always thought that that was when I started um, uh, actually really prescribing it. Um, but then I realized uh, after seeing some, some patients who I've been following for 20 years or so, uh, and seeing uh, the fact that it was really right after that patient, before I adopted it, mm-hmm. I had started prescribing it. Um, so I, they had made a believer out of me before I applied it to my own situation. That's awesome. Um, talk to me, like, can you think of like one particular success story beyond mm-hmm. just the, the first woman that mm-hmm. you know, you're like, oh, my goodness. 
Can you think of when you first prescribed it for somebody or something like that when you're like, wow, these results are just unbelievable? Well, I, you know, I would just use myself. I mean, so what is the, if you look at the cholesterol trialist data, yeah. for every uh, 37 uh, point reduction in your LDL cholesterol, you will reduce your cardiac event rate by 22%. Hmm. So I don't know that I would be sitting here talking to you with an LDL of 170. Sure. Let's see. A male, don't have that double X chromosome thing going, okay, to protect me. Right. Uh, African American, okay, uh, over 60, I, was, I would probably not be here. And so uh, I would say that, you know, the, the saves sometimes are the ones that you don't find out what would have happened because, you know, you put somebody on a completely different health trajectory uh, with their diet. But, yes, I do see it all the time. Um, I, see, I mean, and these stories, you, you give me the, the, you know, the, the health care scenario and I can tell you uh, the patient who ended up in the emergency room because he was still taking insulin when he wasn't a diabetic anymore because he had gone vegan. Uh, the patient who felt lousy because and was just feeling weak and tired and went to his internist after he went vegan well is because his blood pressure was 85 over 50 why is it, and so the, what would the internist say said you have to eat meat so you can take your drugs again said what is that okay he was taking drugs for a disease he didn't have anymore high hmm. blood pressure is dramatically improved in many people moderately improved slightly improved in other people but it's pretty much going to get better and right. you have to watch those blood pressures cuz you know you may end up with uh, some really low blood sugars some really low blood pressures if you're not working with your doctor to back off of the drugs uh, for diseases that are completely unnecessary do you view this as the future of cardiology I, I really do. Um, I'm really um, encouraged by the fact that American College of Cardiology has a focus on nutrition, that there are major medical centers uh, such as Rush University with our real proclivity to have prevention as an everyday thing. This isn't just something that we do on the side. Uh, yeah, we do call it the Cardio Nutrition Clinic, but everybody's into it. Everybody knows it. Not everybody does it. We only have 21 uh, <laughs> vegan, vegetarian cardiologists right, right now, but that's growing every time and I suspect that it's going to continue to grow because people realize the kind of impact that it can have on their own health their family their community and ultimately the, the country so I'm always saying that it is everyone's patriotic duty to be a vegan okay. <laughs> I haven't I haven't heard that one yet the patriotic duty um well, just consider me a patriot then. There you I, I want to end by asking you specifically about the African-American community. Yeah. You, you touched on that. Mm-hmm. Um, face an uphill battle already with when it comes to heart-related issues and diabetes, correct? Yes and no. And okay. so we always thought there were some things that were different about the African-American American community. You've heard about the pro- proclivity to have hypertension. Right. And this theory... I don't know how well the theory can be substantiated. Uh, there are p- more people who are expert than me on this. The idea that people were forced to come to the United States in slave boats, um, horrible condi- conditions, a lot of dehydration, a lot of people dying there. And who is it that survived? The people who survived were people who were able to conserve volume by conserving sodium. So we're all descended from people who are sodium sensitive. That's a th- decent theory. 
probably fits with some of the data. The more salt you eat, the higher your blood pressure uh, in, uh, in African Americans in general, not everyone, uh, because we are a mix of all different kinds of everything. Sure. Um, but if you take, if you if you were to say, well, how about the diabetes part? No, there would be Pima Indians and Mexican origin people. They have much more proclivity to diabetes than African Americans. So why do we have it? It's because type 2 diabetes is very common when you have central obesity. So it's actually obesity and nutrition that's the problem, not so much the, the, uh, the genetics. And so if we actually focus on the diet, we can get rid of the risk factors. Um, this was actually something that's been published by the Adventist Health Studies, that they looked at the African American population, and they do extremely well with plant-based nutrition. So if we wanted to eradicate the difficulty that we're having with the increased health care costs and the, the early death and that 11-year gap in, uh, in decreasing cardiovascular mortality that was published by the CDC a few weeks ago, all we need to do is improve the diet. I want to talk to you a little bit about food deserts and, and where it's hard to get high-quality, nutrient-dense food. And I think a lot of that may be tied to the subsidies that are given to these unhealthy food companies. And you see that type of food in abundance in impoverished areas. And I know that that's, that's a passion of yours. So, I, yeah, I really think it's more the latter. that The food desert has been out there. Brian Smedley talked about it. He was from Detroit. Uh, he put together um, a, a, a good book on it when he was working for the, the uh, CDC. And the fact of the matter is most of these food deserts have actually, you know, we had Whole Foods when I lived in Detroit as uh, chief at Wayne State. I lived downtown. I had to go to the local grocery store that had incredibly high prices and unhealthy food, or i just drive to the suburbs if I had time. Well, you know, uh, you know, we had a big food chain. I won't say which one for you know commercial reasons, but one of those good, healthy food chains moved right into that community, and they had a tremendous business. Uh, they had a reputation for high prices. They made sure that the prices were reasonable. That's really, really a, a, a model for the future. But who was going to make the cultural change so that the things that are bought by the, the patients in the inner city are different. Um, yeah, you can actually do a lot with pricing. And so what you mentioned about the subsidies is really true. If we can actually put a higher price on sugar-sweetened beverage or any kind of sweetened beverage um, and refined foods and snack foods, you will actually see a decrease in consumption. There are actually randomized trials that show that in a prospective fashion. And so it probably applies to everyone, not just the African-American community, but the poor people tend to eat the things that are least expensive and yet are filling and satisfying, and that tends to be the relatively unhealthy stuff. If we change the culture, change the culture completely by getting people to eat more whole food plant-based it's actually less expensive you can get large bags of beans that that are very inexpensive buy things in bulk uh it's just a matter of being able to you know love that and love the effects of it and that really is a cultural change you know we did a show a few months back called being vegan on a budget and we took one of our nutritionists from the barnard medical center uh down to the grocery store she was able to fill up a cart, a full cart of groceries for a week for two people 
and it was about forty dollars. <laughs> Isn't that something? That is fantastic. Um, Can you publish that one? Oh, oh, it's up. It's oh, fantastic! Up. And just head over to iTunes or Spotify. Look for the Exam Room, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Plug, plug, uh, and then search <laughs> out the Vegan on a Budget. Uh, vegan episode. on a Budget. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I want to end by asking you about the healthcare system in general. You obviously work in the healthcare yeah. industry, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of people in this country that say, "Hey." We need significant changes. So I'm, I'm just curious about your feelings. So one of the benefits of having been in the positions that I've been in is that at one point, uh, 2005, I was recommended to be a cardiology representative to Medicare for the HOPS, the Hospital Outpatient Prospective Payment System. It took me four years to be able to say that out uh, really fast. Um, and the APC panel, or Ambulatory Payment Classification Panel, gives advice to Medicare <clears throat> about their next set of um, payment guidelines. Well, interestingly enough, I, you know, there were some details, and yeah, I was able to get them to not cut the price of PET scanning and all this, all this stuff. There, there was work to be done, but I actually, believe it or not, just sat there in awe. Everybody thinks Medicare is some horrific. No, these are people who are completely dedicated to the health of this nation and to take a finite budget and spread it over a decaying health system, okay, where people are doing all the things that they shouldn't do, increasing the cost of, of health care, and nobody's given a break by saying, I'm going to be a vegan, I'm going to exercise every day, I'm never going to smoke, I'm going to watch my weight, watch my cholesterol, watch my blood pressure, and know that my blood sugar is normal. And that quickly was the Heart, American Heart Association Life Simple 7. If we get everyone to do that, Medicare would have an easier time administering, um, being able to give expensive therapies to people who need it. And this is, this is what it, we cannot do right now. Now, the other thing that I would applaud Medicare on is their attempt to try to move us away from volume-based purchasing to value-based purchasing. Let's pay for quality. Let's pay for outcomes. Let's say, you know, we really do want health care, mm-hmm. not sick care. And so I'm going to give you, you know, a smaller payment than usual to take care of these patients post after they have a heart attack. Okay? We're going to give you 75 or 80% of the usual fee. But then if you get them to do the cardiac rehab program, okay, and you get them to do uh, plant-based nutrition and, and maintain their medications adherence, you're going to have such good outcomes that 75 or 80% is way more than you're spending, and you'll be making a bundle and we'll be saving money. That's the kind of prospective cognitive approaches uh, that we need. We need to incentivize health. Uh, and pay for that, not just paying for events that happen um, and trying to get p- dig, dig people out of a river that they shouldn't have fallen in in the first place. My thanks again to Dr. Kim Williams for coming on the show. Such a great conversation to revisit for this episode. What a remarkable human being he is. Before we talk about the upcoming International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, I want to let you know that our conversation on the exam room was brought to you by the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. The fund supports organizations that carry on Greg's passion and his love for animals through rescue efforts and veganism and wildlife conservation. Visit GregoryRyderFund.org. That's Gregory, R-E-I-T-E-R, Fund.org to learn more about his story, animal issues, and subscribe to the fund's newsletter. The link can also be found on our podcast site for this episode. 
continuing here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. As promised, we just had Dr. Robert Osfeld on the show. He, of course, will be speaking at the 7th Annual Conference on Nutrition and Medicine coming up here in beautiful beautiful, gorgeous Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, July 26th and 27th. But, oh, there's a special pre-show, as it were, on July 25th as well. But anyway, in all seriousness, if you are interested in nutrition and medicine, preventative medicine, the link between diet and disease, this is the place to be. We're talking about hundreds, if not thousands, of doctors all converging in one place to discuss the latest research on that. And joining me now is the woman who is putting all of this together. She is Dr. Neil Barnard's right-hand man or woman, I should say. <laughs> and coincidentally, she also went to my same high school just a, a couple years apart. Uh, she is the conference coordinator for ICNM. And with that, we welcome Natalie Hartcastle to the program. Hello, Natalie. Thank you, Chuck. It is great to have you. I know that you must be super busy right now. Yes, we are putting on all the finishing touches for the conference, and we are really, really excited. Now, rumor has it, and I, I've told the listeners already that we, at some point, will be taking the show on the road to the conference to do a taste testing to see how the food is shaping up. There has already been round one of taste testing. Can you give us a little preview of how that went? Yes. So we went to the Grand Hyatt in downtown Washington and met with the executive chefs, and they prepared an incredible, incredible display of food. Um, we had incredible desserts like avocado creme brulee, a pear flan, um, apple and pear granola, um, all kinds of things that are just going to blow your mind. I can say that based off of I've been to the last two of these, mm -hmm. uh, that the food has never disappointed. Uh, it has always exceeded expectations by a wide margin. Like, yes. wasn't even close. Just, like, blew everything out of the water. Uh, so the bar is set awfully high this year. But based off of what you're saying, mm -hmm. I'm expecting that they're going to clear that bar quite easily once yep. again. And it's going to be hard to beat the cauliflower steaks we had last year. But you wait. Just you yep. wait. Yep. Just you wait. All right. So hopefully in the coming weeks, we'll uh, we'll have this taste test. We'll be able to give you the full rundown on the food because, I mean, really, at the end of the day, isn't that what everybody cares about most? <laughs> I mean, really, what tastes good, right? I mean, that's all that matters in life, yep. right? Yep, yep. Uh, all right. Let's talk serious uh, about this because I wanted to bring you on uh, after we had Dr. Robert Osfeld on because I thought it'd be cool to talk about who else is going to be there. What else are we going to be talking about? I know that there are... Th 30 speakers at the event this year? That's a lot. Yeah, we've got 30 speakers, and they hail all the way from Australia to Sweden to Canada to right here in the U.S. in Washington, D.C. Clearly have the international part of the name of the conference covered here. Yes, very much so. Um, let's let's go through and pick out some of the uh, ones that you're most excited about. Uh, we don't have time to go through all 30 programs. I mean, that would be like a three-hour program. But can, can you pick out a few that you're just like super, yeah, I can't believe that this is happening? Yes, can do. Um, we're very excited about... About um, one in particular, our very own Hannah Kaliova, um, our director of clinical research here at the Physicians Committee. Um, she'll be talking about her groundbreaking research on how plant-based diets impact metabolism, body weight, uh, the gut microbiome. It's going to be super interesting. Um, we've also got dietitian Brenda Davis who's going to deconstruct keto and paleo diets. Now, that one is going to be a hit. Yes. Whenever we do anything keto-related on this program, it blows up. <laughs> Both keto episodes that we've done have been in our top five most downloaded. Yeah. 
Um, and so I, I expect that that one will have a overflow attendance yes. in, in that particular conference room. Yes, I think so as well. Yeah. Yep, she'll be ready to answer any questions. Um, we've also got two incredible expert panels um, talking about building nutrition into your practice. Some of the speakers include um, Rob Osfeld, who you just spoke with, Michelle McMacken, um, Jamie Kane, Baxter Montgomery, uh, Danielle Bellardo, Ted Barnett, and our very own Lee Crosby. The Fiber Queen. Yes. 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 That's a, that's a powerhouse panel right there. It is. It's a very interdisciplinary uh, group of doctors and dietitians. So we're very excited. And that's about integrating that into into your own practice, yes. right? So yes. here's what I'm excited about. And, and I talked about this with Dr. Osfeld was the way that he's been able to integrate that into his own practice up there at Montefiore in the Bronx. Uh, I mean, the way that this guy is is screening forks over knives for his patients and really introducing them to the concept, many for the first time of a plant-based diet and how he's getting them to not only, you know, be okay with it, but actually be receptive yeah. with it is just remarkable. So I think that, you know, for practitioners, for doctors, nurses, they're going to get a ton out of that. And I would also think that if you're not in the medical field yourself, you're just there because you're very gung-ho about the plant-based community, yeah. you want to know about this stuff, this would also be a great panel for you to sit on on so that you can begin having that dialogue with your own doctors. Yeah, with your own doctors, with your family, for your own personal health. It covers everything. Yep. What else do you got? Yeah, so we also have um, Dr. Marie Borum. She's a local here at George Washington University. She's the director of the Division of Gastroenterology, and she is going to be talking about something that is particularly important for Washington, D.C., which is um, racial disparities in colorectal cancer, because mm. um, here in D.C. we have some of the highest rates of colorectal cancer. We do, indeed. So you don't want to miss that presentation. Uh, what I know about that is that it's it's really sad but interesting the way that it's divided into you know the different parts of the city the, the city here if you're unfamiliar is divided into eight wards so essentially think of it as eight unique neighborhoods and the less affluent wards are the ones where we're seeing just sky high cases of colorectal cancer particularly among men it is just astronomical these numbers it's mind-boggling yeah mind-boggling absolutely and then you just go a couple blocks over to a more affluent part of the city and the numbers are much more in the normal range but because the numbers by and large in these less affluent areas of the city are so high it pulls the the prevalence of it the overall average way up and so when you look at the numbers you think what in the world is going on in dc yeah but it's really just certain sections mm -hmm. of the city yep so that's a, that's a really really interesting yeah interesting definitely panel um, i'd love to have her on the show as a matter of fact yeah see if we, we can should, we should get happen. her on the show yeah. I'm sure she'd love to be mm -hmm. yeah um next up we've also got huge name uh, brooklyn borough president eric adams yeah yeah um, he's a, a really esteemed mover and shaker who's going to join us for the friday night dinner program and he's going to talk about his personal journey from being a type 2 diabetic patient all the way to now being a policymaker. So he's an incredible, incredible speaker. Um, great stuff. I've had him on the show previously, and his story is really, really just captivating. Mm -hmm. the, the way that he went from being a police officer and discovering the plant-based diet in this ultra-macho community, used it to turn around his own health, and then got people kind of in, in, in the same way that Rip Esselstyn was able to do with firefighters, but sure. got a number of police officers to then you know, kind of open their eyes a little bit and be like, hey, I can be super macho and still eat plants, you know? And now he's 
all the work that he's doing up there in Brooklyn is just extraordinary. The way that he's now assisting in schools and the entire borough, it's just Mm -hmm. mind-blowing the amount of work that this man is putting in. Yes, absolutely. This has been a signature for him. Uh, It's really, really um, impressive. And and I I would love to see him, uh, you know, continue to do this into the future. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. And then, drumroll please, (laughs) the big name we've got is Dr. Dean Ornish, Mm -hmm. um, who was the first ever researcher to prove that heart disease could be reversed with diet and lifestyle. So you may be familiar with uh, the the Ornish program or the Ornish diet. Um, That's him, and he's going to be here. Dr. Dean Ornish. That is a heavy, heavy hitter in the game. Indeed. Did you land that one? Did you send the email? Did you say, (sighs) hey, Dr. O, pretty pleased with sugar on top? Well... You know, stevia, maybe, whatever. Yeah. Agave. Agave. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Will you please come do this? <laughs> I wish I had. <laughs> yeah. But he's going to be talking about his unifying theory of reversing chronic diseases. Cool. So some very fascinating stuff. That is cool. That's yeah. key. Reversing diseases. Mm-hmm. So all hope is not lost after you've been diagnosed. Correct. That's yep. part of what I was just talking about also there with Dr. Osfeld. You know? Yep. Once you get diagnosed with heart disease and nearly half... Of of all Americans now will have some sort of cardiovascular ailment. Like it, those latest numbers are just mind blowing to me. You know, so it's really important that people realize that it's never too late. Essentially, you know, you got it. It's yeah. never too late. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. So those those are some of the uh, the the main game. Uh, presentations, but I know that there are also some special sessions that you have put together as well. Talk to me a little bit about those. Yeah, so for the first time ever this year, we're offering a three-credit pre-conference nutrition basics session on July 25th, the day before the conference. Mm -hmm. Um, And you'll hear from Dr. Barnard himself, uh, Rob Osfeld, Brenda Davis, and then a couple other experts from PCRM. Um, We're going to cover all the nutrition fundamentals for diabetes, obesity, cancer, heart health, and so much more. Uh, That's a a big one there. So, yes, you can get your continuing education credits by coming to this conference. That's a big one. Uh, That's a pretty cool panel, and that's that's on July 25th. So the the big conference is the 26th and 27th, but the kickoff then is is actually on the 25th, huh? Yes, and for the full conference, um, including the pre-conference session and our special Friday night dinner program, you can get up to 18 credits of CMEs, which we have never offered um, that high of an amount before, so we're pretty excited about that. That is cool. Yep. I wonder if I, we can give out CMEs for listening to this show. That could be fun. Yeah. Let's look into that. Yeah. That would be, be a nice little feather in our cap. Could be cool. I don't know. Yeah. That's a sidebar. That's a conversation yeah. for another day. Yeah. Uh, all right. So we've got that. Um, I know previously I've also had Dr. Lee Frame from George Washington on the program. She loves the gut microbiome. Yes. I mean, loves it. Like, this is her jam, <laughs> you know? And the way that she explains how gut microbiome research has... Um, really advanced thanks to the way that we've been researching DNA and how those things kind of go hand in hand was fascinating. It is it is one of my personal favorite episodes, but she's going to be there. She's all, she's doing something uh, w- with a poster session for us, right? Yeah, so she's going to be one of our great speakers as well. And then she has been uh, pretty vital in putting together our poster presentations, mm-hmm. which we're going to have um, displayed throughout the conference for multiple opportunities for attendees to view. And it's original research from folks around the world. So we're um, excited to show that off. 
Now, for those who aren't necessarily in the medical field and aren't familiar with the term poster session, what exactly is this? I'm envisioning like a science fair as a kid where we all had that like tri-folded, you know, poster board and we had to put up, you know, mm-hmm. what, what we found. Is this kind of the same deal? Yeah, so it's not too far off from that. So um, we've got students as well as medical professionals um, who have original research abstracts and you'll usually have one or two presenters and they're just going to be standing by their trifold posters, as you described, uh, just kind of going through their research and answering any questions uh, folks might have. Very cool. Yeah. All right. Good deals. Yeah. Uh, what else there? What else do we have? Yeah. So I briefly covered this, but we've got an incredible um, Friday night dinner program where Here you can get- for the food. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you can get two additional uh, continuing education credits, and we've got the fantastic uh, Dr. Dean Ornish and Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, as well as Dr. Barnard. So you don't want to miss that session as well. Well, You get to wine and dine with those guys, huh? You do. That's a heck of an opportunity. Fine dining. I love it. (laughs) I love it. No, man, seriously. I think that the opportunity to to break bread with with Neil and and Dean and and Eric, I mean, where else are you going to get that kind of an opportunity, right? Yeah. It's definitely one of the highlights of the conference, so I would not recommend skipping it. No, definitely be there. And uh, last but not least, I would imagine that for – everybody in the medical field like it's important to be able to make new connections and new friends and bounce ideas around so there's a networking session as well yeah so for both students and nurses we have multiple opportunities for them to group together and chat Um, we've got a student session on friday evening Mm. Um, we've also got a nurse networking lunch on saturday so those are both great opportunities to network and connect very cool I like the I like the students. All of the doctors that I've spoken with are really optimistic about this new crop of doctors who are currently in medical school mm-hmm. and the way that they um, have taken it really largely upon themselves to investigate uh, the link between diet and disease, nutrition and medicine. And a lot of them then have naturally found their way over to plant-based diets. And so a great number of them will be here and uh, – so I would expect then that the, the future Dr. Ornishes, the future Dr. Barnards, the future Dr. Osfelds will be in this networking session. Oh, most definitely. Yep. That's exciting stuff. Um, the last thing that I, I wanted to uh, ask you about, and we, we touched on this briefly, is that you don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to be a nurse to be here. You know, if you're somebody that's just really curious about your health, if you want to be up on this latest research, this is a great opportunity to really get in and understand it on a level that few will ever get the opportunity to do. You get to hear it from the proverbial horse's mouths. This is really exciting for everybody. So if you're not a doctor, if you're not a nurse, you're saying this is yep, still Yep, we something. welcome you. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, to register, uh, pcrm.org slash ICNM. Is that correct? Yep. All right. So July 25th is the pre-show. The 26th and 27th are the headlining events. Uh, 30 speakers in all. We went over some of the biggest ones, but up on the website, pcrm.org slash ICNM, you can get a full list of speakers, the full schedule of events, and it is just mind-blowingly amazing. And uh, Natalie Hardcastle, thank you so much for your time. I'm sure that you're going to be back in a couple of weeks when we do the taste test. Yep, you got it. Thank you so much, Chuck. You would come back for yes. that too, wouldn't you? Yes. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> Not going to miss that one. of all Americans have some form of heart disease, and one in four of us will actually wind up dying from it. 
but 40% of all of those cases are preventable. That's what the research has shown. And we have a ton of resources and links to that research up on PCRM.org. Just click on Health Topics right at the top of the page and then choose Heart Disease. Everything you need is right there at your fingertips. Lots of facts and information to get you going. And maybe you can even share it with a friend or a family member or pass it on to your own doctor. Get that conversation going. It's about making sure that as many people as possible get their eyes on this life-saving information. And if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee and leave us a five-star rating when you do. We'd appreciate it. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and wherever you download your favorite shows from. We greatly appreciate your support. I also want to take a second again to thank the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund for helping support this episode of The Exam Room. This is such an incredible fund doing truly exceptional work. The fund supports organizations that carry on Greg Ryder's passion and love for animals through their rescue efforts and veganism and wildlife conservation. I encourage you to please visit GregoryRiderFund.org. That's Gregory, R-E-I-T-E-R, Fund.org to learn about Greg's story and about animal issues and subscribe to the fund's newsletter. The link, we've also posted it on our podcast site for this episode. And this episode is fresh out of time. It's all the time we have for this week. So for everyone here at the Physicians Committee... I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, keep it plant-based.